1: 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Woundry people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share the recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is Victoria Vanstone. Uh, She started Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy, and with Lucy Good, also started Sober Awkward Podcasts. Uh, Victoria is a self-confessed party girl before making the decision to quit alcohol and has been sober for around four years now. So welcome to the show, Victoria.
0: Hi there. How are you?
1: Good. Thank you. Uh, Your website, Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy, describes your approach to sobriety and helping others as, in quotes, I'm a mum of three and was a huge binge drinker. I got some therapy and quit drinking over three years ago. I'm passionate about women helping and teaching each other in a safe and non-judgmental environment. So before we go to the sobriety part, can we just go back to the beginning? On the show, we usually talk about your journey and what influenced you growing up when you were exposed to problematic drinking and how you found sobriety. So I'd like to start by giving us an insight into your early family life.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in a very loving home, Um, not too much trauma. My parents were just huge party people. So from a very young age, I wanted to join the party. I could see how my parents were the life and soul and how everybody liked them. And I thought the more they were liked was because everybody was drinking around them. So for me growing up, all I saw was people having a good time and using alcohol to do that. So of course, in my squishy little child brain, I was just absorbing that culture from a very, very young age. And growing up, I just became the instigator of that for me and my spotty little mates at school. So I was the one that could steal the beer out of the fridge or could steal the bottle of wine out of the garage. I was the one that had stolen the packet of cigarettes off my auntie Pat. I was the one that was you know, responsible for the party. And I made myself responsible for everybody else's joy at a very, very young age. I became a people pleaser. I didn't realize until much later, of course, that that's what I was. But I saw that how my parents made people happy. And I thought, well, I think I can take on that role. And that's how I'm going to be accepted by groups of friends and by my family. So I was always the one that was there, you know, pouring horrible liquors down my cousin's throats and doing crazy, you know, passed out in farmer's fields in a cider coma, I was the girl that you wanted to hang around with if you wanted a good time. And of course, that developed into my teens, the teenage years, as you know, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of anxiety involved in those, in those years. And, you know, even with speaking with boys, I found that alcohol made me more confident. So therefore, I drank more and more and more of it. It wasn't until, I was sort of 15 or 16 that my drinking changed a little bit it was always quite frivolous style of drinking always celebratory there was I was never really trying to numb something out I was more to try and make everybody else feel happy and that actually is quite like a huge responsibility for an adult or a child but I just didn't know it then I just knew that I knew how to make people smile and make people drunk of course yeah At school, when I was about 14 or 15, there was a situation where I was a little bit bullied. As I said, there was no huge trauma in my life. But as I've discovered more recently, that trauma can be quite relative. And for me, it was the situation that broke my heart. And of course, when something breaks your heart, it was just two girls that I was best friends with never spoke to me again when I was at that age where my friends were the most important thing in the world. And a little hole opened up in my heart, I think, at that young age. And the only way I knew how to deal with any emotions, of course, was to go and get drinking and go and get happy again. So I think as I aged, that hole got a little bit bigger. The more alcohol I filled it with, the bigger it became. And, and I didn't realise that hole was there until much, much later on in my life. So I just continued this destructive, I realise now, behaviour throughout my life. Yes. Yeah, so... At, Of course, drinking led to uh, recreational drug use in my my late teens, early 20s, which led to a drink driving incident, which was like you'd think would be one one of the red flags. But I was so deeply ingrained in drinking culture by that point that I just used everything that happened to be good or bad as part of my repertoire of kind of riotous rebellion, as I say. But I found that drinking was my personality and people began to expect it from me. I I thought it was my environments and my culture but looking back I could you know set up a party on a pile of mud with a string of fairy lights and a bottle of wine. I was taking the party wherever I went and I took it to college, to university and eventually traveling all around the world. The party was in my backpack so my drinking continued throughout my youth. I never had the opportunity to self-reflect because I didn't know who I was without it. I had no identity with alcohol. And when you're a party girl, you know it's it's hard to see outside of that because you don't have the clarity. I was always hungover or I was always pissed. So therefore I was unable to see those red flags flying right in front of my eyes and chose to ignore them and move the party to the next town, city or or bar. When I was 23, I blew one of my fingers off with a firework on the Millennium Nights. Um, There was lots happening, crazy nights that led to injuries, that led to promiscuity, that led to all sorts of risky situations. And what I found was when I was traveling around the world for 10 years on my own, I didn't care about myself that much. I think Glennon Doyle in her book, Untamed, has a really classic word, which she says, abandoning yourself. I mean, I was abandoning myself every night because the hole in my heart had become so big that I, I didn't know who I was anymore. And I was actually quite lost in those years. So it just developed as I got older and older and older. And it wasn't until I was in my late 30s that I had... A possibility and a chance to reflect on what my drinking was doing to me
1: okay do you want to go back a little bit and talk about life as a young child you know going to school and things Do do you think you're an anxious child at school
0: no I don't think I was an anxious child I think I was actually a very very confident child and I think I was perhaps a little bit scared of my own confidence You know, as I said, I was from a very loving family with a great background. You know, we had we had enough money. We had you know, we had whatever we wanted. So I was actually very, very lucky. And I think perhaps part of the reason I drank so much was because I was trying to dumb that down and fit into the people that I was surrounded myself with. At one point I went to a really posh school, which I didn't like, and I had to wear a straw boater and act all posh all the time, and I hated that. So I rebelled against that by drinking, by smuggling a bottle of vodka into school. And then I went to a really rough, comprehensive school where a lot of the girls were kind of pregnant at 14, and, and I had this kind of silly posh accent. So my way of dumbing that down and being a bit more street and being like the girls that I'd met was also to drink alcohol so that they didn't think I was some, you know, toffee weirdo coming from the posh school. So no matter what situation I was in as a youth, I used alcohol to to change myself and and sort of morph myself into what I thought people wanted from me. Because of that situation with my friends at school abandoning me and and not wanting to be friends anymore, I realised quite early on that something I did from that point was to not only try and make friends, but to keep them. So because those girls had walked away from me, my main um, kind of objective with friendships was to have the friends and then keep them liking me. And the only way I knew how to do that was to entertain them. And of course, the only way I knew how to entertain was to down uh, 10 pints of lager and, and show everyone how crazy I was that was my identity the crazy party girl who you were guaranteed to have a good time with from that very young age so it was impossible for me to identify as i said and and yeah that that youth never really had an opportunity to be anything else because that's what i saw growing up that's how i saw people got liked yeah
1: so how early did you start drinking
0: I remember my grandbabysitting for me from when I was about 12, and I'd always had the plan. It had been hatched over a few weeks. I had a bag hidden in the in the garage that I was going to steal a couple of bottles of wines and bottles of wine and um, sneak off down the recreation park and get them down my neck with my mate. Unfortunately, my friend I remember very clearly was putting the bottle to her mouth, and I drank two bottles of wine. And I remember not thinking I was naughty, I was always quite rebellious, so therefore I was kind of hitting that need of, I had elder brothers and sisters that were already rebelling against our parents and so for me it was like I could join in, I I wanted to be the, the rebellious one as well so that I could age and catch up with them. So I remember drinking the bottles of wine and feeling for the first time a sense of euphoria that I had never felt before and that the world problems were off my shoulders and that I could just do nothing but sit on a swing and you know drag my hair along the floor and look up at the sky and just feel like gosh I this is what I've been waiting for and I remember instead of feeling um sad or embarrassed with my hangover the next day on the bus on the way to school you know I'm only 12 years old it's was very very young I remember feeling so proud of myself that I had entered the drinking arena and I had you know done what I'd been meaning to do for such a long time it was like you know a coming of age for me which is sad really I guess looking back now a coming of age should have been learning to skip or you know <laughs> but no it was yeah it was just because it was so common in my house that I just didn't know another way of being.
1: Yeah so how much older were your siblings?
0: Um, They were four between four and 13 years so my my eldest sister was was nearly thirteen when I was born, so you know I watched her going out with all these different boys and just being everything I wanted to be so I was in a hurry to grow up and join them going out to pubs and clubs and raves and bars and whatever they were doing. I was just in a in a desperate hurry
1: so Did they enable you to do a lot of underage drinking, or did you just get it yourself?
0: no, I I mean, I think sometimes they were stuck looking after me, so therefore they had to drag me around with them a little bit to places. When I was 14 or 15, my older sister Sarah used to, there was one situation where we got caught, her taking me to an illegal rave. So there was some influence there, but it was I was never holding back. I was the one trying to talk them into it. I was like, come on, I'll do your chores for you. I'll do the dishwasher. Just take me to that bloody nightclub because I just I just was desperate to be involved. It wasn't their fault. I can certainly say that. It was definitely me instigating everything.
1: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned having friends at school, but did you have any other friends who you – engaged in sort of drinking activities with on your own
0: well everyone and anybody that was near me it was the thing to do i wasn't interested in playing sports down the park or i was more interested if i went to the park i was sort of crawling on my hands and knees to find cigarette butts that we could roll into you know risla papers and try and smoke i was just all i felt like was that i needed to rebel so I did have other friends, but I was, all I did with them as well was to try and get them to, to drink with me. So there was never really any wholesome relationships with friends. It was always about, right, where are we going to party? Where are the boys? What can we do next that's, that's going to be naughty?
1: Yep. So what did your parents think? Did they know?
0: They didn't know at that age that I was stealing booze and, and we did get caught a few times, but I think they just put it down to the normal teenage rebellion. It wasn't abnormal at that point. Everybody I knew was doing the same thing. So it 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 didn't stand out as being weird. And when we had social engagements at the house or Christmas, you know, everybody started drinking with Bucks Fizz at 9 a.m. So I think by the time, you know, I'd got stuck in and managed to steal a couple of glasses of sparkly out of the fridge, everyone else was so sozzled that it didn't really matter. And my parents are from an area where, you know, it was that yuppie 80s time. They had a bit of money for the first time. The post-war angst was over. It was let's the good times roll and and let let the good times roll. and, And we'll do that with alcohol and we'll have parties and we'll have fun. So they were just living the dream, basically, compared to what their parents had suffered, you know, during the war. So they... They were just having fun. And in those days compared to now, there wasn't the opportunity to see outside of that. It was just that everybody drank. We can afford to drink. Let's do it. And and that's what I saw growing growing up. And I think there is a history of drinking on my mum's side of the family. My dad's family signed the pledge, which uh, in the 19... 20s I think it was a pledge it was a religious pledge that you signed that meant you would never drink it was something to do with the temperance movement but yeah they weren't big drinkers but it just wasn't because it wasn't considered to be toxic drinking it was never alone it was never for commiserating it was a joyful type of drinking that looked like fun so no one was ever pointed out of the crowd you never looked at anyone and went gosh she's got a drinking problem you just went oh wow aren't they good fun and didn't she make a funny fool of herself last night and isn't it funny how hungover she is today I never saw the negative repercussions of alcohol as a child
1: yeah that's interesting isn't it yeah <sighs> looking back okay well listen let's take a short break and we'll have some music and some announcements drumming those get just
2: drink and money Away oh,
1: first song was by Lucy Tiger and it was called Baby Don't You Go, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
2: 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach.
1: And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside
3: Catch the podcast via
2: the 3CR website or on your favorite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday.
3: Hi, I'm Rod Cook, one of the presenters of Nostalgia Unlimited, heard on 3CR every Sunday night between 8pm and 11pm. Did you know that 3CR relies on the support of our listeners to keep going? We're a not-for-profit community radio license holder, and a strong subscriber base is vital to our financial independence. We are proudly community-owned and community-controlled. The program I co-present, Nostalgia Unlimited, plays over 60 songs each Sunday evening, all from our own private collections. And to keep programs such as ours going, it's necessary to have plenty of subscribers to help pay the bills. So why not become a listener subscriber now? You can do so by contacting us on our website, 3cr.org.au backslash subscribe or call the station during office hours on 9419 8377. Press 1 and you can subscribe over the phone.
1: you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today, I'm talking with Victoria and we're talking about her life journey and recovering from alcohol abuse. So, Victoria, before the break, we're talking about drinking and the fact that it was basically what everybody did and drinking wasn't seen as in a negative light. So do you want to take us through from, say, your early 20s about how your drinking impacted on your life and your relationships with people?
0: So because I um, probably didn't care about myself that much because I was always drinking and always hung over I think I got myself into a lot of messy situations in my early 20s I actually ran bars in Thailand beach bars that unfortunately got destroyed by the tsunami but I always surrounded myself with people and places that my drinking was hidden with it was very clever I sort of diluted my drinking into the crowd that I surrounded myself with so it never got caught out no one ever told me off or said you have a problem I mean when you work behind a bar it was again it was expected of me so I ran bars for many years I had lots of different partners and I traveled the world um, and I lived in France and all of these amazing things but throughout you know, I was traveling and going to all these amazing places, but I never really got to experience them. I mean, I lived in Sydney for two years and never saw the opera house because everybody I lived with, you went and bought, you know, a tray of beers and you didn't do much. So I missed out on a lot in those years. I wish that during my travels, I hadn't been so inebriated and I could have seen the world a bit more, but I wanted to have children one day. And I, I was desperate to meet someone who loved me for me and not for being a party girl and I went through lots of very up and down relationships with partners because it was always based on drinking it was always based on meeting them in a bar or or every night drinking and numbing out if problems were happening in relationships so I never had successful relationships in the end, I started to question why why am I not having this successful life that my friends and family are all having why am I just sitting on the beach in the middle of nowhere with a bar and a and a drink problem. I think the red flag started to fly then towards my towards my twenties because I could see that everybody else around me was moving forward with their lives and and I was a bit stagnant.
1: Yeah. So traveling a lot, I guess, do you sort of look back and see it as a, I guess, a geographic where you're trying to find somewhere else that was better? Was that what you're looking for?
0: It was often that I'd made such a fool of myself in one place that I had to leave the next day because I was so humiliated that I had to go and find somewhere else to stay. It was kind of, I thought I was running away from the mundanity of, of English life because I was living in, in near a town called Reading. You know, my rebellious nature meant I wanted to do something different with my life. I didn't want to stay in the same village where I grew up and get a job and get married and get a mortgage and do all those things. I wanted to have a life that was rich with, you know, with food and drink and colour. And I just wanted something else because i was i think i was quite creative but my creativity had been numbed out with alcohol so i never got to go to college and study art which i would have liked to have done later on you know all of these things were repressed because of the alcohol because of the partying but actually my creative mind would have liked to have a more interesting life and a more colorful life which i think at some stages i did try and do i always managed to survive somehow but that that moving around was a way of Diluting the problem, I think, as you say.
1: Yeah. So, what caused you to sort of start settling down a bit?
0: Well, after the tsunami, I decided to go and live in Australia where my sisters were living at the time. And I bumped into an old friend from uni who was living there. I hadn't seen him for 17 years. And for the first time, I met someone who had no expectations of me. They hadn't met me when I was drunk, they didn't know much about my past or or who I was, or who I thought I was. And we were engaged within six weeks of meeting. It seems like a real hurry, but I knew straight away because it was the first time I felt truly loved by someone and not loved because I was the fun party girl, just loved for being me. And that changed a lot of things within me. It meant that I didn't have to perform anymore and uh, I could take off that booze mask that I'd been wearing for so many years. Yeah, but no, I got, we were married quite quickly and I was three months pregnant on our wedding day.
1: Okay. So finding somebody who I guess didn't know your, your history uh, meant that, as you say, you didn't have to be someone you weren't. So did that sort of allow you to relax a bit more? Uh, Did that affect your drinking or was your drinking just the same?
0: It allowed me to mature. I don't think I had matured until that point, because I didn't really feel like I was worthy of maturing. Worthiness comes up a lot in my own writings and podcasts, like for many, many years, I don't think I was felt that I was worthy of happiness for some reason. And I think it had to do with that situation at school many, many moons ago, I felt like I always had to achieve more or be better than and, and I wasn't, living the life that everybody wanted and then when I met him it was like oh well actually I don't need to be all these things and it's okay to just be me and that was the first time I experienced that I mean I was still drinking and we drank together but it did slow a little bit then and then I became pregnant and of course I had a nine-month window of sobriety right there forced upon me against my will and I was able to see life Through that window, and it was something that I had never witnessed before. It was brighter and lighter, and I was capable of relaxing into life a little bit more. And I thought, gosh, this is nice. Like, I don't have to drink and I can still be me. And I'd, you know, go to events even though I was pregnant and sit and enjoy myself and have conversations. And I realised that confidence that I'd always had was still there and I didn't need drink. But, of course, the mundaneity of the motherhood and going from being a party girl to being stuck at home and being a full-time mum, for me, I was the perfect candidate for a good old bit of mummy wine culture.
1: So how soon did that start?
0: It started about six weeks after my baby was born. You know, I was a brilliant mum. I'm not saying that I loved my baby more than anything in the world. But going that transition for me was hard. I'd been out all the time, traveling the world, being crazy, this banshee on tour. And then I was stuck in an apartment in Sydney on my own with a crying baby, a pile of nappies and a pile of washing. And it just wasn't who I knew and it was tough you know the baby wouldn't feed properly the normal problems with you know having your first child you feel like it's a life and death situation moment to moment and I was scared again the emotions I felt led me to this build up this feeling of wanting to drink and as soon as I met a mother's group we were planning that first night out because i wanted to escape it was that classic needing a reward wanting to escape wanting to numb out this this new person this new boring mum that i'd become so of course that's what i did and that carried on for 4 years i drank and parented never in front of the child never during the week i was the perfect mum with the paleo snacks and the right pram and you know looking like i was winning on the outside and everyone was so impressed but at the weekends, I just wanted to get wasted, and that started to sneak into the during the week a bottle of wine during the week once the baby was asleep, and just all those classic behaviors started you know creeping up upon me yeah. so what did your husband think? Well, I think he thought it was all quite normal to begin with i hadn't really told him about you know my recreational drug use in my past and about you know how really how wild I had been in certain times in my life because I was really trying to snare myself a good man so I didn't think any of that was necessary (laughs) he didn't need to know any of that stuff so I mean I think he was okay with it but then something started to infiltrate my hangovers a sort of sinister force something that I had felt in my early 20s doing my sort of drug-induced 90s period I did have a little bit of anxiety back then and after the baby was born and I was hung over on Sunday mornings I started to feel a lot of guilt shame and anxiety because I wasn't capable of looking after my lovely newborn baby um, and that was something I hadn't felt before that was a red flag that I wasn't dealing with and that was waving in front of me again but I was trying to still combine these two lives because who was I if I couldn't go out and get wasted So for four years there, before I got pregnant with my second child, I tried to combine parenting and drinking um, and the anxiety got worse and worse and worse. And the real turning point for me was exactly the question you asked. It was the change in my husband um, and the guilt that I felt about seeing that he was the one that I was having to take over on a Sunday and he would look at me and he, he couldn't see what was going on with me. I was, you know, be lying in a bed with my finger on my pulse, having a panic attack. And he couldn't reach me in those times. He'd be like, what's wrong with you? Like, why is alcohol doing this to you? Why are you getting these panic attacks? And I, I couldn't answer him. It was like, well, I'm over drinking, but then I'd get better after a few days. And then I'd repeat the same pattern again and again and again. It just went on and on and on.
1: So I guess you're at the point now where you've got two children. Yeah. So was the second child something that you felt you could manage better? Did you have the experience or not?
0: I I felt at that time the anxiety had got so bad that I felt like I must get pregnant because therefore I'm going to have one of those, another lovely window of sobriety and then perhaps, you know, maybe then I can stop. So I wanted another baby, of course, but I also was I needed a break from the mental torment So I was pleased to get pregnant. I loved that nine months of being pregnant again. Six weeks after she was born, she was difficult to feed. She wasn't growing well, all of these problems. And then I have a four-year-old and a newborn. Of course, again, my emotional state led me to go out one night and I got absolutely blotto. And I woke up the next morning. And really, for me, that was one hangover too far.
1: And so what happened?
0: So I plodded out into the lounge that morning. And, you know, my husband had was concerned about me. He never told me to stop. He never told me to slow down. But I could see in his face that he he was worried about me. And I walked into the lounge that morning and just said, "I, I cannot do this anymore. I'm trying to moderate. I'm failing. I don't mean to drink so much, but I always do these panic attacks. I can't cope anymore. I think I need professional support. And that's really when my story changed was was that morning.
1: Right. So what was the first thing you tried? What was the first reaching out? What what were you looking for?
0: Well, I looked online, I didn't really know what to do. I'd been to an AA meeting with my sister many years ago. And I didn't my sister was 22 years sober by this point. And because my drinking, I didn't feel like it was extreme. You know, I had that delusion that aa was for people who were you know passed out on a park bench with a bottle of jack daniels that was just What I thought in my head, I realize now, of course, that they would have accepted me with open arms. But at the time, I didn't feel that that was the path I wanted to take. And also at the time, I didn't really realize I had a problem. I just thought I was a pesky binge drinker who had a tendency to overdo it. I didn't know I was an alcoholic at that time. And really, when I reached out for help, I wanted to learn how to be a better drinker. I didn't want to learn how to stop because, of course, I didn't know I had an identity beyond being a big drinker. So actually what I did was to reach out to a local therapist that I just googled online and it read break free from your addictions and I thought gosh well that sounds I do feel like I need to break free from something because I because of the anxiety and I thought I'd phone up the lady and she'd say you know sorry love this is for real alcoholics here you're just yeah you're not worthy of this help but Of course, he said, "See you Monday." And and yeah, and I had 12 weeks of therapy with Diane, in which I uncovered a lot of what we've talked about, and my reasons why I was a people pleaser, and and how the opinions of others had had ruled my life, and that I needed to leave them at the door and rebuild my life without alcohol.
1: Yeah. So, what were your early experiences then with that knowledge that you? Did she say you were an alcoholic?
0: But I remember the first thing she said, why are you here? And I kind of remember sort of whispering under my breath saying, I think I might have a problem with drinking. And she was saying, say that a little bit louder. And I was like, well, I think I have a problem with drinking. And as soon as I said it in my head, I realized I'm here because I have a problem with drinking. And I couldn't really comprehend it. It took a while for me to sit there and, and a few tears later for me to understand that I was in the office of a therapist because i had a drink problem and that was a huge realization for me
1: yeah so in in those initial 12 weeks what sort of things were you becoming aware of about your behavior
0: I realized that I was almost pushing the responsibility of my drinking onto other people or environments or culture or places, all of these things or people I was with. I was like, Oh, I can't hang out with him. He's the one that gets the shots in or, you know, but it was always me. I think that's the biggest thing I learned early on in therapy was that it was my hand reaching out for the drink. It was my hand reaching into the fridge or cracking open a beer or twisting a cork. It was my responsibility, I realized in the end, and that I was then responsible for changing my own behavior. And that was huge for me because it meant then that I could decide not to drink, whereas I hadn't realized that was an option before.
1: Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Okay, well, so we might take another break there. second song was also by Lucy Tiger and it was called Found My Way Home and again courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
2: Live at the Bowl is on now.
0: The open air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts On the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full programme at artscentremelbourne.com.au. 3CR Supporter. Virtue here from Music saint Frontière. Subscribe to 3CR for music programs dominated by Australian artists, supporting Australian music making and lifting your day with glorious sound. 3CR is a membership based organisation. We depend on our members' support. That's why we make it so easy to subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or go online to 3cr.org.au
1: This is The Living Free show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And today I'm talking with Victoria about drinking and sobriety. So, Victoria, before the break, we were talking about becoming aware that drinking was a problem to you and realising that you had a responsibility to do something about it yourself. So do you want to talk about the sort of things that you did early on to to try and manage your drinking and how successful they were?
0: I think for me it it happened during the therapies that something clicked in me that I realised not drinking was a possibility for me. I think I'd gone through life accepting the fact that I was always going to be a huge drinker. And during those periods when I was sat in that little office with, with Diane, my therapist, I think I for the first time understood that I was capable of evolving in some way and being able to not be led by the opinions of others and leading myself true authentic life and understanding that that was enough and that I didn't have the responsibility to entertain everybody at all times anymore. So understanding that I didn't have to instigate the fun meant that I could free myself from my addiction, I suppose. And understanding that there was a spectrum to alcoholism and that I did fit on it somewhere allowed me to rebuild my life. I think one of the really good analogies I learnt was I sort of had to step off the merry-go-round. I remember... Um, Diane saying to me like imagine a merry-go-round with all the chaos and everybody's on it and you're on it with them and it's spinning round and round and round like imagine what it's like to step off and just watch the chaos but not be involved in it and I remember feeling like a huge sense relief of relief when she said that like actually I can step off and watch it unfold and it's okay no one's going to dislike me but honestly, it took me a long time to be honest with others about my drinking because I was scared that I would lose all my friends. And for 18 months um, after I decided to quit, after being able to you know, lay the new foundations for my life, I kept it a secret because I didn't want anybody to know I felt it was only important to my husband and my two children and me it felt very very private to me which I regret a little bit because it meant I had to go to social occasions and hold a beer when I wasn't very comfortable doing that that was a little bit of a weird time and I wish I hadn't been so scared to be honest about the incredible changes I'd made, really.
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of people find that, you know, as you noted earlier, that social pressure is, it's just normal to drink. And if you don't drink, then there must be something abnormal. And, you know, trying to to stop drinking, I guess, makes you stand out to a large degree. Yeah. So how did your friends cope with you being different?
0: Well, it took me a while to admit it. And then when I did, I remember reading, I think it was The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober by Catherine Gray. And I remember thinking, gosh, she's so open and proud about her sobriety. I think I need to be more like that. There's no point in me hiding at home. I'm, my plan is to be my authentic self and me hiding behind a, you know, a full strength beer and not sipping on it is, is not what I, not who I want to be. And I started to tell everybody and I was so surprised by people's reaction. And I also think people were fed up of like holding my ponytail while I vomited kebabs (sighs) into pub toilets. I think they were kind of relieved that I had chosen sobriety because, you know, I was probably a bit of a mess a lot of the time and a sort of drunken slurring idiot. So I think most of them were relieved. And I think the lovely thing was that nobody judged me and I hardly ever had any disappointed looks or any disgruntled comments it's been a bit hard for my parents I must admit They, you know we love each other dearly but it is confronting for them they probably deep down feel like they may have had something to do with it or you know I don't blame them like blame is futile in this game you know blaming other people for my own destruction is a waste of time because it never helps anybody and just causes loads of arguments and anxiety so I always chose never to blame them on my upbringing they just were doing what they knew how to do and they're still great party as my parents so that's always a bit difficult because I don't want them to feel bad so I don't I don't like to like rub it in their faces but of course they know what I'm doing now but the biggest surprise about sobriety is how accepting people are of it and how understanding people can be
1: yeah well that that's the thing to get a to get a better better version of you is is an advantage for them in real terms <laughs> they yeah. shouldn't they shouldn't be shouldn't be a kickback. You mentioned earlier your sister was sober, so yeah. do you have a good relationship with your siblings? Has that changed?
0: It's changed. yeah, I understand her more now that I'm sober. I just used to think she was a bit of a party pooper because of course, being such a drunkard, I thought anyone that was sober was a com completely boring. So now I have an understanding of what she's been through. She was a binge drinker like me. So, yeah, we have a sort of camaraderie now where we have an understanding. She's amazing. I always used to look at her in awe when I was a drinker and think, gosh, you know, she's up till 3am with everybody else with a feather bow around her neck singing on the karaoke machine I just used to look at her in wonder and think gosh how does she do that without a drink but of course I realize now it's just the same thing you just remember it all like I can still act like that we can still act and be silly and act like idiots and almost look drunk and just be a hundred percent sober and not just have the hangovers and the anxiety anymore. And she's always inspired me secretly inspired me throughout her sobriety because I just, I just saw something magical in her that, that she could do all those things and not have a sip of booze. So she has been a great inspiration for me.
1: So has she tried to help you with your recovery?
0: Well, we have a very different recovery story. She's very much AA and I'm, more I I went down the therapy route so so we do differ on a few things you know I don't like to be as anonymous as perhaps she is yeah there's different different routes but we respect each other's journeys accordingly yeah
1: yeah I think that's pretty common in recovery that that there's no one way fits all that's for sure yeah so stopping drinking then how did that change your relationship with your husband and your family your kids
0: I think my husband was just so pleased for me not to have the anxiety anymore that, you know, that went the day I got sober. I didn't have anxiety anymore. I have occasional bouts of, you know, worry with that's just part of being a mother, but you know, the the doom and gloom that used to crash over me in my hungover state has gone. And he's so relieved and happy for me. And he gets the full me now. He doesn't get this person who's, you know, demanding paracetamol and a glass of water in bed on a Sunday. I'm up having a coffee, going for walks, living my life, being normal. And my children get to experience something that I never did, which is the opportunity to not drink in their lives. I think I didn't have that. I'm I'm giving that as my sort of legless legacy to them, is that they will have a choice, whereas Mm -hmm. I didn't. And they won't ever have to see me drunk. My children are now 10 and 6 and I had another baby in sobriety my little 3 year old Fred and they will never have to see me drunk which for me I'm very very proud of I think it's one of the best things I'm ever going to do you'll have to check in with me in 15 years time whether it works but I think that's going to give them more of an opportunity to not lean on alcohol as they you know live out their lives if, if I can do that one thing for them then I would have achieved being a good mum. And also the fact that I'm more present, I'm more available. I'm not perfect. Like I still scream and shout and I'm just, I'm not a great mum sometimes. I'm awful, but I'm also able to bear witness to my successes and my failures. And that's something that I'm really proud of.
1: Yeah, it is good. Plus you can remember what you've done. Yeah. 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 So I guess that takes us on to, you know, the things that you've done in your sobriety. So as I mentioned earlier, that one of the things you did was start a website, which I think was a blog, Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy. Do you want to talk about why you set that up and how that works?
0: Well, I think I've always been a writer. I didn't really know. And when I was pregnant, I wrote a series of children's books. It just came out of nowhere, but I thought it was because of the pregnancy hormones. But actually I think I've been blocking all of my creativity with, with alcohol. So when the alcohol sort of was... know the ethanol came off my skin my brain started working again and I wanted to put pen to paper because I wasn't a um an extreme drinker um when I gave up I was this binge drinker this party girl I felt like then that I was the only person that had ever given up mid-range binge drinking I didn't know that there were others like me I didn't know there was this whole sober curious movement So I decided to put pen to paper and write a diary from the day that I gave up about what it was like being this one person in the world that had quit drinking. And that became my blog and that became my outlet. That became my own therapy. I loved writing about alcohol and how it was making me feel and how I had lent on it throughout my life. Yes, I thoroughly enjoy writing since giving up drinking. I've written a book, which I hope will be out this year, which is called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. And, you know, that has become my outlet, my creative outlet. And pottery and boxing and all of these other things you find yourself doing in sobriety because you suddenly have so much time.
1: That's classic, isn't
0: it? I know. Cliché I am, a cliché with all those things. I mean, I'm up in the morning going for swims, doing exercise, that, that boring sober person is definitely now me, but I love it.
1: <laughs> That's great. So do you want to tell us a, about a few of the people you met along the way that, you know, being involved in the sober, curious movement has, you know, there's a lot of people out there. So what are some of the things that have been a highlight for you?
0: Well, one of the best things I did in early sobriety, it sounds like I know that social media isn't, It's probably one of of quite a toxic thing in in some respects. But in this sobriety scene, you know, it's almost like inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. And I made an Instagram account, my at drunk mummy, sober mummy one. And I followed people that were sober or people that were mindful drinking. Or I followed everybody that I could that was on the same path as me. And one of the earliest ones I followed was Sober Dave. I don't know if you know about Sober Dave. He's like this 55-year-old carpet fitter in England who does a blog. And he's just a very really inspirational guy just because he's so relatable. You know, and Ruby Warrington. And well, I read all the books. I soaked them up as quickly as a gin and tonic. Back in those days of my early sobriety, I was just trying to absorb much, as much information and find out as much about people who were sober as I could, just so that I could learn about what was possible and what, what I wanted my life to now be. So, yeah, I just followed so many people, and that's been a huge help. I also started meet-up groups for sober people in my local area, and I also started, started a Facebook group for particularly for women which is my drunk mummy sober mummy group Um, and that's been hugely helpful because everybody posts on there there's probably 20 posts a day of people at different stages of sobriety those that are still struggling and it's great to be a support for others nowadays as well
1: yeah it's quite a thing in the um, recovery movement actually helping other people just to discover that there's there's another way you know that you're not locked into where you are Yeah. So I want to also talk about Sober Awkward. So do you want to tell us how you met Lucy Good?
0: Yes. So I was writing an article. Lucy runs a a network for single mums, an online network in Australia. And I she reached out to me to write an article about single mums drinking so i wrote this article all about the dangers of of being a single mum and leaning on alcohol to you know especially being a single mum you're at home alone a lot and those weeks where you don't have the kids so i wrote this article for her and usually she charges to put articles on but said oh, look i'm not going to charge you vic because i have my own issues with alcohol so, as soon as I read that, I picked up the phone and said, Hello, do you want to meet for a cup of tea? We met two days later, and she told me that she had become a stay at home drinker. She was a single mum herself, and her drinking had gone from the party girl into her being stuck at home with her online business and drinking way too much. Um, it had got completely out of control. And for Lucy, she just needed to, she'd tried a lot of avenues. She was, she always describes it as being in a room full of doors and just not knowing which one to open anymore. And she just needed to meet somebody that was like her and that had been through a similar situation to her that was still happy. She could see I was still fun and still confident and still had a life. And I sat there and said to her, look, we had ordered some porridge. And I said, look, this is tea and porridge. This is me now. And it's okay. She went out after our meeting, bought two bottles of wine and went on a massive three-day bender. She didn't know at that point that that was going to be her last hurrah. We call it the last hurrah, but we've realized the last hurrah can lead to some pretty dire situations. So it's actually really negative. But she had her last hurrah and she woke up on the Friday morning and said, right, that's it. And from then on, we've just become really, really close friends. She's been sober for a year now and it's sometimes just about timing and for her it was about meeting the right person and 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 it being about timing and Lucy had done so many podcasts for her own business before it just seemed like an organic thing for us to do a podcast together. And also seeing as we were diff- at different stages of the sobriety journey, it was good to have insight. When we started the podcast, she was only four months sober. So she was still on, on shaky ground there. Um, and it's been a lovely process as part of our podcast is to see Lucy change before me, you know, her skin get better. Her, she stopped taking her antidepressants and it's been a wonderful progression um, and to see that change has been really really lovely so yeah we do a comedy podcast now about what it's like being two sober women in this booze drenched world and all of the sober awkwardness that and the social organ- awkwardness that comes alongside that. Lucy still finds it very, very hard to socialise without drinking. And I have to drag her out on many occasions and try and get her to, to get out of the house a bit more. But yeah, we are absolutely loving doing the podcast. It's getting uh, 30,000 downloads a month at the moment. So it's just incredible how many people are reaching out all over the world to us, just saying at last, like we resonate with, with two women that have been there and done that. and we try keep our podcast upbeat because sobriety isn't about being boring sobriety is about being authentic and learning to live with our shame from our past. We've done some terrible things, Lucy and I. Like the, she's always got one up on me, which always makes me <laughs> laugh. I thought my stories were bad, but she can always like get one on me. But we've learned to say like what we're doing is we're helping people by telling our own shame stories and going, we've all done some crazy stuff, and it's okay. Let's just move on from it. Let's laugh about it, and let's you know live our happy, sober lives.
1: Yeah, agreed. If anyone listening would like to find out more about Victoria Vanstone, you can visit drunkmummysobermummy.com and you can find the Sober Awkward Podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That's about all we've got time for today, so I'd like to thank Victoria Vanstone for joining us and sharing her recovery and sobriety experience with us. Thank you, Victoria.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and be joined by a member of Al-Anon Family Groups. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now.
3: Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash
0: subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.